And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, February 17th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why Homeland Security's Science and Technology Directorate cooks up explosives in glass test tubes. Plus, an update on the cars and trucks that'll be in your agency's fleet. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, after a year of testing the prototype, the Defense Information Systems Agency has wrapped up the initial phase of a project it calls Thunderdome. It's a cybersecurity platform with which DISA hopes to protect data in a zero-trust architecture. For details, Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr spoke to DISA Deputy Director Chris Barnhurst. Yes, the success criteria for the Thunderdome OTA, Other Transaction Authority, agreement was met, and that was effectively uh, declared by Dr. Brian Herman, who's the leader of our Cybersecurity and Analysis Directorate, uh, on February 10th of this year, so just a few days ago. So yes, you heard you heard correctly. And so what was the criteria that needed to be met? Uh, so there was, there was a number of um, distinct things laid out in the contract language itself. I'd have to, frankly, pull that. To, to really articulate it line by line for you. Um, but over the last, I'll say, nine plus months, right, we've undertaken a series of activities to integrate a number of different technical capabilities with respect to the prototype. And we went through an operational assessment and testing phase, uh, as well as uh, red teaming. And the results of all of those uh, activities and interactions was an acknowledgement that, yes, the prototype had met the criteria that the government laid out. So tell me about the timeline. When did you actually complete the operational assessment phase? Uh, that was completed in, I'll say, the mid-January timeframe. So that was wrapped up in mid-January. What happened next? What was the end of the pilot stage, or as you said, the prototype stage? Yeah, so I'm, I'm using the term prototype because yeah. I, I think technically with respect to the OTA, it is a prototype, right? Others have referred to it. I've heard it uh, in the news and elsewhere referred to as a pilot. But just to be more accurate or granular about it, we call it a prototype. And was that all completed at the same time? You completed the prototype phase and then you wrapped up the whole assessment? Yeah, and the, the prototype, um, because it is an operational capability, right? So so we're leveraging it for over 1,600 user, users across DISA right now at multiple locations. The prototype doesn't there's no hard stop date where we, we cease all activity and then step back and look at the results. Uh, it continues to run and will continue to run into the future. Uh, and in fact, we're, we're now looking at how do we continue to expand that prototype for additional use cases at additional sites and geographic locations. Um, one of the things we're interested in is learning more about you know, how the systems uh, scale and interact when we add additional locations. We think that we have every reason to believe that that will go well, um, but that's part of kind of the next phase of this is to expand the prototype going forward. That really brings up the topic of interoperability. Is that where you're going with this? Will it be able to work in a variety of different agencies to achieve zero trust? So, so we have demonstrated uh, with, within uh, the prototype that, that these capabilities are interoperable together. Uh, and, and actually, it is that interoperability and the way that they work together that creates the um, user and device access type decisions that align with zero trust principles. And 
we're confident that if we were to apply the same architecture right in other spaces across the department that we would achieve those same types of results. Were there road bumps along the way? It seemed like you had an extension about halfway through last year. I wouldn't describe really anything we encountered as road bumps. We did have, I'll say, some practical issues with accreditation that we needed to work through. So, for example, the Secure Access Service Edge uh, solution needed to be accredited on the IL-5 level, the unclassified IL-5 level. And so that was something that we had to work through DISA and DOD CIO. But all in all, given the complexity of the environment we operate in, right, I think this was a really a success story for the agency and, and DOD writ large. Demonstrating that we have the ability to do this and now scale it is a accomplishment for sure. And you had talked about some agencies not using this system at all in the long run. Can you sort of expand on that a little? Yeah, so there, there are some unknowns. Um, the There are options, right, that the department has. Um, we have not proposed to the department that we mandate any element of the Thunderdome solution set, um, but we are engaged in um, transparent conversations, right, with the military services and with others in the department to try to lay out and articulate what um, this architecture looks like, what it brings to the table, and talk through what would be needed to deploy it on a larger scale. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, there's there are options there, right? It's not an all or none kind of proposition. There are elements of the Thunderdome solution that components could do- adopt across DOD uh, in whole or in part um, going forward. So as an example, the Secure Access Service Edge client is something that could be adopted um, irrespective of whether you adopt the rest of the architecture and infrastructure. Uh, and so those are discussions that we've got to have within the department to see where we land. You talked a little bit about what you expect to see in, in the next year. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So um, we are likely to add additional activities to what we're calling Thunderdome, right, in order to continue to learn uh, different aspects associated with migration activities. Uh, and we will do that while we await approval from ANS within the department on the award of a production, a follow-on production OTA. And this is consistent with, with something that we provided in our advance notice to all potential offerers when we issued requests for white papers for this particular OTA, that we may enter into a follow-on production OTA if the prototype was successfully completed, which at this point it has been. Um, and so we require that approval from ANS you know, to go forward with that step. But once we get that approval, uh, if we do, that's when we would likely enter into that production OTA follow-on. And we would continue to expand then this capability out uh, across not only DISA, but all of the users of what we call DODNet, which is our local area network that serves defense agencies that we're consolidating defense agencies to. And this will become a part of that architecture uh, going forward. All right. And I, I noticed that in some of the things I'd read, there's a sort of talk of 2027 deadline. How does the whole picture look in 2027? So that's something that we're, we're working through and takes a fair amount of coordination to, to provide an answer on. We haven't changed that date as of this point in terms of when we want to target phasing out Joint Regional Security Stacks or JRSS as it's known, but that date has some dependencies that are not controlled by any one component to include DISA. So while we operate Joint Regional Security Stacks, the optionality that I described earlier in terms of whether components across the department adopt this architecture or some, some elements of it or some other zero trust type architecture and the timelines associated with them doing that 
will then drive whether we're able to hit that 2027 target date or whether it moves one way or the other. Uh, and so really more to come on that as we have those conversations. Chris Barnhurst, Deputy Director of the Defense Information Systems Agency, speaking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr. Check out Alex's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, an update on the cars and trucks that'll be in your agency's fleet. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Biden administration wants the federal fleet of cars and light trucks to be all electric. Most of the fleet is acquired and managed by a section of the General Services Administration. Here with more on the plans, the acting deputy director of GSA Fleet, Christina Kingsland. Ms. Kingsland, good to have you on. Thanks. It's great to be here. And the assistant commissioner for travel, transportation and logistics at the Federal Acquisition Service, Crystal Philcox. Ms. Philcox, good to have you on. Thanks. Good to be here. And give us the state of the GSA fleet, not only how many cars and light trucks, but you have a certain percentage that is electric already, correct? We do. The electric vehicle market is just really taking off. So we've got this year so far, we have purchased almost 20% of our orders have been electric. So it's a huge bump from last year. We won't end the year probably that high, but we are really pushing forward to meet industry where they are and to make sure that we are working with agencies closely to fulfill their missions and do that in a way where we can meet the administration's goal of electrifying the fleet. You know, we were actually at the Fed Fleet Training Conference a couple of weeks ago in conjunction with the Washington Auto Show, and it was amazing to see all the vendors that were highlighting all of their EVs. Uh, so electrification, I think, really is the future. Safe to say, though, that a lot of the segments are really not quite fully baked yet. For example, pickup trucks, there are electric ones out. They're very expensive. There's not that much choice. Fair to say that it's the sedan, really, where it's the most mature market-wise? I'll jump in here on that one, Tom. You know, the federal fleet is a working fleet, so we do have a lot of pickups in the federal fleet. I would highlight, though, that the SUV market and even the minivans, we have quite a few of those in the federal fleet, and there are a lot of options, both in full battery electric and the plug-in hybrid PHEVs. So there is some good coverage out there, but of course, there's still a ways to go to satisfy all the mission requirements of the federal fleet. And that's why the administration put the mandate out there for 2027 to give time for the federal fleet to grow with industry and move into, you know, as new models are available, we're adopting them early. And by 2027, getting to that 100% of all light duty acquisitions being zero emission vehicles in 2035 then for all, right? Because there are lots of bus options as well. We have quite a number of buses in the federal fleet as well. Yeah, maybe get one of those flywheel buses from Copenhagen from 1950. (laughs) I'm just kidding on that one. But with respect to the nameplates, I mean, there's a Buy American requirement. 
Does that include a Japanese nameplate if it's manufactured, say, in Tennessee or somewhere in the U.S.? So we're actually from the GSA fleet side of the house, and our purchasing contracts are actually subject to the Trade Agreements Act. So um, it's not quite the same as the Buy American Act. So wherever we have trade agreements with countries, and so it, it is a little bit different, but the vast majority of our business, of course, is through the big three U.S. suppliers and then resellers as well. We have some really good partnerships with American resellers, too. But if someone wanted something not a four-door sedan and not the large black SUV that cabinet officials like to be driven around in, they could have, say, a Toyota all-electric SUV, provided it was made on U.S. soil? We do actually have some Toyotas on contract through our secondary suppliers. Toyota doesn't contract with us directly, but we have U.S. Fleet Source who does provide us with some Toyota models today. And how are the people that drive the cars reacting? Do you get that feedback? Do you look to them for what they're thinking about these things? Crystal? We sure do. So we get a lot of, um, you know what, it's the really exciting car right now, right? So some of these, especially the new all-electric pickup trucks, folks are really excited to get in them and try them out. Even in our federal law enforcement community, there's a lot of excitement to get out there and try the Mustang Mach-E, the F-150, try them in you know, upfit opportunities there. We have several LE options in electric today. Yeah, I would say that, you know, we're really listening closely to all the fleet managers out there and to the drivers to get feedback from them on their experience of transitioning to this new electric fleet. So very interested in what they have to say and make sure that we can meet their needs. We're speaking with Crystal Philcock. She's Assistant Commissioner for Travel, Transportation and Logistics at the Federal Acquisition Service, and with Christina Kingsland. She is Acting Deputy Director of Fleet, both at the GSA. And what about the chargers? I mean, the charging situation is really the more, I guess, logistically challenging than buying cars themselves. And what's the status of chargers? Where are they? Are they in all GSA-operated facilities or what? We are really pushing charging infrastructure first. It's absolutely key to make this whole effort work. And so we're working closely with agencies to make sure that they have charging infrastructure in place, that it's in locations that work for them, that they have ways to pay for that charging if they're out and roaming around. And so really working closely with our agencies on that. Um, I don't know, Christy, if you want to talk about the contracts a little bit we have in place. Sure. Our GSA administrator, Robin Carnahan, has really challenged us to be that one-stop shop for charging infrastructure needs, and GSA is uniquely positioned to provide that. The Federal Acquisition Service, we have the authority to provide the equipment and ancillary services for charging stations. And then our Public Building Service, the other side to GSA, of course, managing those federal facilities, they have developed IDIQ contracts available for use for not just GSA-managed facilities, but other agency-managed facilities, too, to do that design-build construction, that larger construction that in many cases is needed for planning out and actually implementing larger charging infrastructure. But then we have blanket purchase agreements from the multiple award schedules where agencies can come and just buy the equipment itself or consulting support to prepare for that charging long-term. The two together, you can get full service if you need it from GSA through PBS. They can provide that project management support and you know help you out with all those charging infrastructure requirements on federal properties. 
because sure. it is important to note that the most charging instances are going to happen where the vehicle is garaged. So from a federal perspective, we have to prepare for that so we can operate those electric vehicles. Yes, because the logistics, I imagine, vary a lot. You know, I walk to baseball games, you know, and you see down into the garage of the transportation department building down near the ballpark in D.C., and that's a modern, nice garage. It's so nice. The floors are painted, et cetera. That's an easy place to say, well, let's take this row and put in chargers. But what about some building out in South Dakota where everybody parks outside and it gets to be 15 below for two months of the year, that's a different situation to get those cars charged, presuming the people out there want electrics. It is. And, you know, when you're looking at those types of conditions, those very cold conditions, that may not be the most ideal place where you want to have an electric vehicle. Maybe you want to think through how you're going to deploy your fleet if you have offices in those kinds of climates as well as in warmer climates. And so that's why it's important that we're working so closely with agencies because they have such varied missions. Like the Forest Service needs some off-road vehicles. The national parks need buses to carry visitors around. So lots of different missions out there. And we're working closely with each agency to make sure that we're creating a fleet for them that works for them. And I have to ask you, just because it's a personal interest, a lot of agencies like the Park Service also have fleets of motorcycles and the electrics there, that's a different situation. They don't go very far. Is that something you're evaluating or have agencies asked you to evaluate those? I know you have a personal interest in motorcycles. I don't believe we have any of those on contracts right now. Not to say that we won't in the future, but not at the moment. All right. So just a quick question about, again, the big ones, because you know, living in D.C. environs, you do see them go by and see people climb in and out of the classic suburban are those electric, and can people be served by electric versions of those if they exist at this point? Certainly. As long as the model is available, whatever the use case is, you know, agencies can make the choice to go electric there. And in some cases, quite a few of the cabinet-level secretaries have chosen to switch to an electric vehicle for their primary vehicle, um, moving them around, including our administrator, Carnahan, has a couple of electric vehicles that we use in our headquarters. But are these the magisterial ones that are long and black that maybe even have a flag on each fender? <laughs> maybe not quite that large just yet, but I think the industry is going to get there. All right. Sounds like you're moving that direction, though, pretty steadily. Mm -hmm. Christina Kingsland is acting deputy director of Fleet. Crystal Philcox is assistant commissioner for travel, transportation and logistics at the Federal Acquisition Service, both at the GSA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks for having us. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how three agencies are applying zero trust to really button up their cybersecurity. But first, why Homeland Security's science and technology directorate cooks up explosives in glass test tubes. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Airport security screening is in large measure a function of detection of objects, materials. A recurring challenge comes from non-commercial explosives, dangerous substances cooked up by criminals for unknown reasons. Before developing technology to detect these substances, the Transportation Security Laboratory, part of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Directorate, must reproduce them in a safe way. That's one of the jobs that falls to the Applied Research Division. In the fourth and final interview in our series, I spoke with the division's chemistry branch manager, John Brady. We spoke among a forest of boiling test tubes and burners at the lab in Atlantic City. So with the chemistry branch, we provide a lot of chemistry support services. And one aspect of that is to support the trace test and evaluation processes that go on. But we also perform chemical characterization, purity analysis, isotopic enrichment, There's a lot of different kind of chemistry-based services that we do provide internal and external customers. And all of that chemistry adds up to what in the mission itself of safety? When uh, Dr. Ben Wilkins is kind of producing an explosive in his laboratory, one, he'll kind of perform small-scale safety testing in his laboratory to make sure it can be handled appropriately. But then we also perform quality control on that material, which is typically in the form of kind of spectroscopic analysis or some sort of chemical analysis, like chromatography, uh, residual water analysis, residual solvent analysis, because you want to make sure that the material that we are making is what we intended to make, because if there is potentially an impurity there, it could be hazardous, which is not good if you're going to be handling that material in a test and evaluation event. And then two, We want to make sure that the material that is being provided to the vendors or being used in that test evaluation is repeatable and reproducible so it can be a fair evaluation. I guess the question beyond that is why would you make these things in the first place? There's a lot of different kind of threats that are out there. Some could be potentially military-based explosives. Some could be uh, commercial-based explosives. But there are some explosives that potentially could be utilized that don't have a kind of a commercial or military use. And when that happens, they are not commercially available. So therefore, we have to make those materials ourselves. So being able to perform chemical analysis, safety testing is very critical for ourselves, but also then in the end to make sure that the product is safe and can be used in a fair and unbiased evaluation of the technologies. So you're trying to reproduce things that bad guys are manufacturing for whatever purposes they have that might come to an airplane. Potentially, yes, absolutely. All right. And to the extent you can, how do you know what people are making out there? Our customers were generally kind of give us an idea of what to look for, and they were going to have their own specific and unique requirements. And then we can then develop the, the test matrix or develop the materials or obtain the materials, whether commercially or in-house, to evaluate it. Other people, including TSA, the customer, and maybe other intelligence sources, know what is being developed out there in the wild and so that it comes to you to reproduce it for purposes of being able to see if it can be protected against. Yeah, our customers will have that information and will come to us, and we may not necessarily know the exact reason why. We don't necessarily need to know the exact reason why, but we know that it meets their requirements and their needs, so we're going to make sure that we know how to obtain it or make it so we can evaluate the technology based on those requirements. So you have to make it in a really responsible manner because you have people to protect right in the lab that are making it and also the vendors that will use it to test in their equipment and so on, unlike people that might be making it for a bad purpose. However they make it, wherever they make it, you do it in very controlled conditions, sounds like. Yes, we do it in controlled conditions to ensure our team members are, are safe. 
any vendors or visitors that are coming into the laboratory safe, but we also want to try to do it in, a, say, as environmentally friendly way as possible because we always have to worry about waste streams and things like that too. Right. So then what is the output, like pounds of it, ounces of it? micro amounts of it or what? It depends on what the customer's needs are and what that requirement is. So we can scale up or down depending upon what that system or technology is that will be evaluated. Some of these things, are they stable? I mean, what if it's unstable and you have to, say, get it into a vendor's hands? What are some of the ways you can move it from point A to point B so that it can be used safely for its intended purposes for testing and not for actually blowing up? That's a good question. Uh, we have actually have a, a scale-up process here at the laboratory. So if we're trying to uh, work with something that may be unstable, we actually determine first, is it stable or not stable? And we use small-scale safety testing, which uses a variety of different techniques, everything from impact, friction, electrostatic discharge, think, you know, like the, sh- the static shock, you know, if you touch the door. And we kind of determine the various stimuli that it's sensitive to. Along that lines, we use thermal analysis to help kind of determine how stable material potentially could be, kind of just based on its thermal properties. And all this information is considered, and then we can develop processes on how to potentially mitigate a material or define timelines for how long a material could be potentially used for. So in that, it could be used in that safe manner for that defined time frame. After that time frame, we would then take it back and essentially destroy that material or salvate it so that it's no longer unstable, rendered safe, and we can always repeat this whole process and make more so that it can kind of restart that timeline again. And do you have a sense of how many of these things are out there in the wild? I mean, when it comes to commercial explosives, which are available commercially because they have purposes for moving mountains to make roads or whatever the case might be, then you know what's there. But for the inventiveness of terrorists, for example, are there tens, thousands, hundreds of types of explosives they're making? There's a lot of different types of varieties, and that's why we have our applied research division here at the laboratory to investigate the potential combinations that are out there and provide that information to our customers. Do you ever come across something that you develop and make, reproduce, and say, this actually could have a commercial purpose? I don't think we have kind of looked at it in terms of that, whether it has a commercial application or not, but we will make those materials and provide that data to the customer for all the various properties that it has. And what are the skill sets and educational backgrounds required to do this kind of work? So we typically have a mix of physicists, engineers, and chemists that work here at the laboratory. And we have everyone from associate's degrees to PhDs that work here at the laboratory. Yeah, and so it sounds like you have a pretty dedicated bunch because industrial chemists can get big, fancy jobs at big, fancy corporations. Here they're working in an old warehouse. (laughs) That is correct. Uh, A lot of people care about the mission because you'd be able to come here and you're able to contribute, which is meaningful to me and meaningful to people to be able to kind of contribute to protecting the public and homeland security. So there's a lot of draw to be able to do that and do what we do. And just to be clear, when you develop something because you know this is being made out there and now you've reproduced it from your operation, then it becomes something to go to another operation to see if it can be detected, say, by spectroscopy for operational use at some point to test hey, what's in that bottle going through a screening line? Yeah, there's multiple avenues for the material. So if Dr. Welkins produces a material in his laboratory, 
that could potentially then be handed off to my laboratory for characterization. It could also be then passed off to Dr. Broderick's laboratory, where it could be formulated into some trace standards, which could be then passed along to our test and evaluation teams. Or it could be passed kind of directly to our evaluation teams for analysis if they're looking at something more bulk versus trace. Yeah, so a trace means a very tiny amount can be detected, which could indicate there's more of it somewhere nearby. Yeah, trace is typically uh, we define as invisible to the naked eye. So it's looking for kind of small particles that you cannot typically see with your naked eye and is indicative of a potential interaction with the threat material of interest. Got it. And do these things take the form of liquids, gels, solids, gases? So typically the threats can be in any multitude of phases. Typically, you will have solid phase, but you can also have liquid-based explosives. Now, you can also detect explosives in the gas phase, but you don't necessarily have an explosive in the gas phase, but you can have explosions based on the flashpoint. You must be really consulted by the neighborhood for science experiments. Actually, uh, working with our kind of communication outreach department locally here at the TSL, they have uh, started to look at potential opportunities to work with universities and high schools and uh, grammar schools to try to get us out there in the field and do some STEM or STEAM type activities. Sure. So the kids that want to get away from baking soda and vinegar, they come to you. That's one potential option, yes. John Brady is Chemistry Branch Manager in the Applied Research Division of the Transportation Security Laboratory. Find this in all of our lab interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly the Federal Drive wherever you go. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, how three agencies are applying zero trust to really button up their cybersecurity. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Network. The integration of operational technology with information technology is causing the Homeland Security Department to think a bit differently when it comes to zero trust. The DHS Science and Technology Directorate is taking on OT and IT integration as part of its Critical Infrastructure Security and Resilience Research Program. David Coulter, a senior science advisor for cybersecurity in science and technology, explains how during a panel. The panel also included Elisa Fiola, a cybersecurity advisor for the Technology Transformation Service in the General Services Administration, and Angel Fanoff, the chief information security officer for the Army Software Factory. First, you hear from Homeland Security's Coulter. One of the interesting areas we're going to continue to look at there is the application of zero trust architectures to legacy ICS and OT uh, type systems. So getting getting a look at spreading that across um, and some of these principles across some of these legacy OT systems uh, is going to be a critical area that we're focusing over the next uh, few years here. One thing that occurs to me as you talk about the ICS and OT, that's one area that we, we don't talk a lot about in the federal government. Are you going down this path because you're getting requests from agencies, from industry? What made you all decide to look at the resiliency side and, and how to apply zero trust? Because oh, we're, we're working uh, very closely with um, CISA, and, and our responsibility there is to protect the critical infrastructure and working across public and private partnerships uh, in that domain. So, And there's so many applications, not, not just within um, CISA and what we protect there, but across the transportation sector, energy sector, and we're partnered with the Department of Energy as well. So there are so many applications, so many different devices out there that are getting connected to the Internet and to the networks that, we, that have that uh, gaping opportunity for us to increase the resilience of. 
And uh, are you done talking about quantum? Is that, is that a, do you have to, do you, oh, you're saving it for later. <laughs> you didn't say quantum, and then I'm, I'm, I have no idea what to ask you. All right, uh, Alyssa from uh, GSA. I support TTS, which is the Technology Transformation Services, and we're under GSA uh, for the Federal Acquisition Services, and we focus on customer experience mostly. Uh, we have two lines of business where we have the clients and markets and also the solutions where we have some name brands that you all might recognize, such as login.gov, cloud.gov, data.gov, usa.gov, uh, go USA. So, yeah, we are really focusing on the high-impact service providers as our uh, customers, our partners that we're serving. And I'm particularly focused on uh, transitioning. Uh, the OMB currently has the Max.gov platform, and it's transitioning from OMB to TTS. And we're focusing mainly on the collaboration suite and the authentication platform well, the authentication capability. And so that plays into zero trust because the authentication piece is uh, enabling interagency federal employees to authenticate to service providers with their uh, agency provided identity. So that way that anytime somebody from agency A has to log into a application that is internet facing that some other agency has developed they don't have to create a whole new identity and they're able to authenticate using that identity so uh, it's a really fun uh, problem set to think about and to develop and um, doing it at TTS and really put that customer experience spin on it and to uh, think about it in automation. We're focusing a lot on the open security control assessment language and um, you know, always doing things with FedRAMP in mind. That's also within our portfolio as well. Okay, the, I'm glad that you brought up the Max transition because I know it's something that's kind of been in works for several years. They had, <laughs> if you remember, the lines of business budget formulation. Form, formulation. Yeah. Um, but uh, Max is using login.gov, right or no? Uh, no. So there are two separate capabilities. There's login.gov, which is for the American people to log in and authenticate um, to as a uh, American person to applications, uh, say if you're applying to USA uh, jobs, so you have an identity that lives with you through uh, your life cycle as you go through life events. So that's the customer experience part of it. Max authentication part of it is for the federal employee. So uh, the path forward with that is that it will be an identity broker so that you keep your identity that you have that you're given from your agency and that it's a hub that is federated together and that uh, login.gov is ideally going to be a identity provider that is federated into that hub so folks don't have to keep creating new logins. That was good. That was really helpful because I think uh, one of the frustrations that agencies and federal employees have is 
if I am a GSA employee and I go to DHS to see Donald, I don't, I can't just use my badge to get in. But Max is showing that actually we can trust each other as an example to yeah. say, hey, now if Alyssa goes to see Don, I've ruined it again. Alyssa. Alyssa. Hey, Lisa. <laughs> see, I tried it and I ruined it. Uh, if you go see Don, then, then you, you yep. show, hey, we can trust each other. All right. A lot to talk about there, but move to Angel, Army Software Factory. So since last time we talked, what's been going on? So we onboarded Cohort 4 into the Army Software Factory. So they're going through the Tech Accelerator right now, which is amazing because we are prototyping the new Future Force design of the Army. Um, From our Zero Trust strategy, we've really been in the weeds probably since last time I saw you, Jason. I probably have worked till 11 o'clock every single night, um, and I've talked to many vendors in this room. Probably some of you I didn't return emails to uh, quite yet, <laughs> truthfully, like, sorry. Um, not personal. You know, I got budgets. You're not in my budget right yet, but maybe one day you will be. Um, we're working on a lot of security automation and how we deliver that, and uh, we partner with ECMA. So working out that security automation aspect uh, for our CI/CD pipelines so that we can get our applications into production a lot sooner. Uh, From the Army Software Factory side, we are definitely focused a lot on how we bake in zero trust as our DNA. This is something, I always say, like, zero trust is a bit of a marriage because you have to continuously work on it for it to be productive. You can't just do it once and then it's never there. You have to continuously feed, maintain, update, make sure you're keeping up with technology. Uh, Any vendors that we've put in place now, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean that we're going to be with them forever. I may have just rattled some boots in the room, sorry. Um, But as the speed of technology goes and as fast as it's moving, we have to move with it and we're able to make those quick decisions. So uh, we've been in the weeds a lot. Uh, Things are going great. And if you all don't follow the Army Software Factory on LinkedIn, you should go pull out your phones now and follow us on LinkedIn so you know what we're all about and what we're doing. If you have not looked into what Cohort 4 is around the the development of of, of the training that that Army Software Factory is doing, it's it's a fascinating example of of really taking folks who have certain skill sets or no skill sets and bringing them in. So I'm I'm not going to ask you about that, even though I think it's a fascinating story. But you mentioned the security automation. You're working with ECMO, which is the Enterprise Cloud Management Agency through the Army. Do you get a sense yet of, of how much more quickly are you is the software factory able to push out secure code? Have you started to measure that yet because of the automation and other? Yeah, absolutely. So as we're able to leverage industry technology, um, we're able to get applications out into production. I'd say if everyone was all hands on deck, we still have a very manual process. We could probably get an application out in a day. Uh, so you'd be able to come in, pick up a starter app, start coding, developing, go through your security reviews, and push into prod. An MVP, right? Like, I'm not talking anything huge major, but we can get there uh, if everyone's there. The goal is that one day you don't have to talk to a human and you're able to go into production. Um, we're starting to measure those right now, and uh, it's, it's interesting to see the measurements in between what we were doing prior and how expensive it was prior with your time of your engineers versus being able to leverage technology and some vendors uh, and implement certain tools uh, to be able to get stuff out very quickly. So I'll have those metrics soon. Angel Faniff is the Chief Information Security Officer for the Army Software Factory. You also heard Alyssa Fiola, a cybersecurity advisor at the GSA, and Donald Coulter, a cybersecurity advisor to the Science and Technology Directorate at Homeland Security speaking on an ATARC panel with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Find this and other episodes of Ask the CIO at federalnewsnetwork.com. A decade after it first came out, 
The National Institute of Standards and Technology's cybersecurity framework is due for a major upgrade. NIST is making significant changes to this foundational cyber document, and federal cyber leaders are watching closely. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And Justin, give us an update to get us up to speed on NIST's plans for this framework. Yeah, NIST first released the cybersecurity framework, the CSF as they call it, in 2014. And it forms the basis of many organizations' cybersecurity programs, federal agencies included. It's actually how agencies are graded every year by their agency's inspector generals on cybersecurity. It includes those five very recognizable functions, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. And so it was last updated after the 2014 release. It was last updated in 2018, and now NIST is moving to CSF 2.0. It just released a concept paper laying out the changes, and it's going to spend the next year really bringing those to fruition. One of the major things they're doing is adding a six function, uh, a governance function, to to help really align these high-level cyber activities to requirements and risk management. Sherilyn Pascoe is the CSF program lead at NIST, and she talked about adding that sixth governance function. This is um, not a decision that we're making lightly. The five functions within the framework have really become the definition for cybersecurity. They are included in policies and requirements and standards around the world. But, you know, we do believe that elevating governance to a function is the right thing and the right time to do it. All right. And that's Sherilyn Pascoe, the CFS program lead at NIST. And Justin, what are, I mean, don't agencies already have governance for cyber? Doesn't the current document kind of imply the best way to do governance? Well, the current document has a few references to governance, but it doesn't explicitly really lay out how you do that. And so agencies and other organizations have relied on things like the risk management framework to kind of carry cyber into the risk management world and governance world and and, and other ways of doing that. Uh, One example, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency established new cyber performance goals for critical infrastructure last year. And CISA worked with NIST to develop those CPGs, as they're called, to really complement the cybersecurity framework. CISA Director Jen Easterly spoke at this NIST workshop where they talked about the framework changes, and she talked about setting baseline cyber goals for the nation's critical infrastructure. Our nation's cybersecurity posture can't improve without baseline goals are consistent across all sectors. That's why it's critical for every organization across the country to develop an enterprise cybersecurity program built around NIST cybersecurity framework. Now we're looking forward to working closely with NIST to ensure that all organizations clearly understand how to use the CPGs in conjunction with the framework to both prioritize near-term security investments while developing an enduring cybersecurity program. Well, I always find Jen Easterly more convincing when there's background music, so good for CISA for providing that in her talk there. And what else are they looking at, at NIST, that is, to change their cybersecurity framework? One of the other big changes beyond governance is adding in uh, more references to cyber supply chain risk management. It's become a big issue for all organizations, agencies included, with third-party risks that they're introducing in their environments, the leakage of data and software concerns. That change also caught the attention of Federal Chief Information Security Officer Chris DeRussia. 
He's at the White House Office of Management and Budget, and that shop has been churning out a lot of guidance on software supply chain risks and other cybersecurity requirements. Here's what he had to say about the new NIST framework. This is ultimately going to advance our understanding of how we best measure our progress, frankly. And doing that through the common taxonomies and lexicons is important so we can communicate on common terms and benchmark progress. That's something that's very important to me in the job that I've got. And also determining how well an entity is managing its risk. And that, to be frank, is something that I think we all need to constantly take a really hard look at. We can measure progress and implementation of programs and initiatives and efforts over time, but the question of are we getting outcomes from that? Are we buying down real risk is something that we've always got to constantly be asking. And again, federal CISO, Chief Information Security Officer Chris DeRussia. But Justin, cybersecurity itself has changed in the last 10 years, the last five years since they went about this update. And we have things like zero trust coming onto the scene. There's also lots of agencies talking about 5G and the Internet of Things. Do all of those new technologies, approaches, frameworks get baked into the NIST update? Yeah, there's going to be a concerted effort here to connect the updated cybersecurity framework 2.0 to other documents and standards that have come out. Uh, NIST got some initial responses from organizations, and they referenced almost 50 cybersecurity standards, guidelines, and other frameworks that have been authored that could be layered into CSF 2.0. And as you mentioned, a lot of organizations want to move to some sort of zero trust framework. Um, So that has to be connected here really to what folks are doing in the cybersecurity world. Krista Russia um, talked about that as well in his address. There are obviously big differences across platforms like uh, IT, IoT, operational technology, cloud computing. And I think there's a recognition that uh, in everything we do, there are differences in, in getting clarity of, of purpose there and spring communities of interest together on, on how do you best do that. Well, the life of a cyber professional is never static, that's for sure. Any other changes we need to know about in that framework? And can people still comment, by the way, since NIST tends to open their changes to as wide a comment as they can get? Yeah, they're still accepting feedback, and NIST is actually hosting some in-person uh, events around the CSF 2.0 next week. So uh, stay tuned for, for that. Uh, one of the other big changes they're making or looking to make is somehow expanding guidance on on how you implement this framework. And there were more than 500 comments that said, that told NIST they, that people want more guidance on how you take these really high-level goals and apply them in the real world. Uh, there's tension there, though, because NIST wants to keep this as a broad document. They don't want to get too specific. They want to stay technology neutral and vendor neutral. So Sherilyn Pasco, who we heard from earlier, uh, that was one of the things she mentioned is there's some tension there between wanting to get specific and help organizations while still maintaining this really broad foundational cyber document. Yeah, that's a problem in a lot of technologies where a few companies become dominant, such as in networking. You need to know the basics of networking, but you need to know those vendors' products as a practical matter if you're going to operate in networking. And I guess that's true in cyber. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, an update on the cars and trucks that'll be in your agency's fleet. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. 
I'm Tom Temin. 